Hear now the word of the Lord as it is found in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. (coughs) Let us now give our attention to the reading and to the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? Jesus said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house house or parents or brethren or wife or children For the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we come before thee to hear you speak to us. Through thy word. Lord, we confess that we are oftentimes dull in our hearing, that we are oftentimes distracted, that we are oftentimes complacent. And we plead, O Lord, that you would have mercy upon us this morning, that you would speak to us, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to our passage this morning, we continue in our study of Luke as he is coming to the end of his 
earthly ministry as he is just a short time away from entering Jerusalem for the Passover where Christ would be betrayed, where he will suffer at the hands of men and be put to death and be raised to life. And as we see this passage of Scripture, there are, there's a reminder here to us of something that we often fail to understand. And that is, what is it to have eternal life? That is the question that is posed here this morning. And yet, Luke allows us to see a number of people within this passage of Scripture before they arrive to Jerusalem. He shows us a good man in this text this morning who is sad. He shows us a blind man, as we will see next time, who is able to see. And he shows us a lost man in chapter 19 who is found. Right now, we focus on this man who is sad, this good man, this moral man, this outstanding man who had achieved moral excellence. But notice the contrast, and oftentimes we miss this. Notice the contrast between this man in the rich young ruler and the contrast with those infants that Jesus called to himself that we saw last week. What a wonderful contrast Because he stands with his moral achievement just like the Pharisee in the parable. In contrast to those helpless infants who are completely dependent upon God. In his blindness, in his ignorance, he is totally opposite of the blind man that we will see next time. And in this section, Jesus is primarily wanting to impress upon us that whether one is justified or whether one has received the kingdom of God indeed is the most important question that will ever be settled. Jesus here deals with this rich young ruler And as we come to our text, we see here, as you're following the outline, that the ruler poses an important question to Jesus there in verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Who is this man that is described here in verse 18. Well, all three gospel accounts, all synoptic gospels, record this account of a rich young ruler. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. In Matthew's account, he describes him as a young rich man. In Mark's account of the gospel, in chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, he describes him as one who comes running to Jesus, but who had great possessions. But Luke calls him a ruler. There's no indication given here 
or in the other gospel accounts of any detail about this man. We gather much from our text about this man. But isn't it interesting that in Mark's account, he comes running to Jesus. But here, this man comes to Jesus. He most likely had seen what Jesus did previously in laying his hands upon those infants and blessing them and saying that they too share in the blessings of the kingdom of God. And I'm sure that left this man wondering more, who is this Jesus? And that's really the question we should have been asking all along. When we see his miracles, when we see his parables, when we see these encounters with men like a rich young ruler, it should all make us ask the question, who is this Jesus? Because we come away from the Gospels oftentimes, oh, that's a nice story. Oh, yeah, that's a nice account. It's an account that should draw our minds to the fact that there's something about this Jesus that should cause us to rise up and want to know more. And I think that's the point here. This certain ruler wanted to know more about Jesus. He wanted to know who is this man that is able to place his hands upon children who are helpless and weak and say that the kingdom of God belongs to them. So most likely this ruler is a chief of Pharisees perhaps because oftentimes the chief of Pharisees were called rulers Perhaps he's a magistrate. We don't know specifically. But indeed, he is one who is honorable. He's a man of influence. He's a man with good character. In this account, we see that this man shows great piety. He shows great reverence. He even calls Jesus good master. All three gospel accounts, this young ruler or this young rich man, call Jesus good master. The question that he poses is, is an intriguing question. We see who he is, we get a glimpse of who this man is. That his character is impeccable. You can't ask for a man with a better character. But he asks a question that is so important for us to understand. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It is a good question. It's not a bad question that he asks. Some commentators assume that he is asking this out of wrong motives. I don't think that's the case at all. He's asking the most important question that you and I could ask. It is not a trivial question. 
It's not even a curious question. But it is a question related to his soul. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's not pointing the finger at anyone else but himself. He does not ask in jest. He does not ask in a way like the Pharisees often did to mock Jesus. He doesn't ask it out of sincerity. But he asks, he, he asks out of sincerity. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right at the beginning of the passage, we see the most important question that any of us could ever ask. We can ask all kinds of questions. Well, what do I need to do to join your church? I had an email from someone recently wanted to know about our church and wanted to sit down and talk with me. And after I read the email, I thought, nope, this is a setup. And yet people want to know, what must I do to join your church? That's not the question we want to ask. We want to ask, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is the important question that is asked by this ruler to Jesus. But as Jesus responds to him in verses 19 through 22, we see that Jesus reveals the heart of this rich young ruler. That Jesus reveals the state of his soul. And this is something important we learn from the text. And so the first thing we see in Jesus' response is that Jesus argues with him. Jesus puts forth an opposition to him calling him good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life or good master? What is Jesus' response right off the bat? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? And so why would Jesus respond to this man who calls him good teacher? Why would he question that, or good master? Why would he question that? This man is showing Jesus great honor. This man is showing him the respect that he deserved. But rarely in Israel did you ever see a rabbi or a teacher called good. They never referred to a teacher or rabbi as good. They just called him rabbi. Why do you suppose that Jesus responds with this question, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one. That is God. I think really at the heart of this, we see the ignorance of the rich young ruler. He really, like many people, even within the church, are ignorant of who Jesus really was. 
Jesus certainly regarded himself as good, but he wanted to draw the ruler away from his error of thinking that Christ is only a man. He wanted to draw out of him, what do you mean when you call me good master? Leon Morris, uh, one of the most conservative commentators from days gone by, says this regarding Jesus' response. No one is good, but God alone is not to be understood as a repudiation of this word good applied to Jesus. If that was its meaning, Jesus would have plainly stated he is a sinner. Rather, Jesus was inviting the ruler to reflect upon the meaning of his own words. What he had just said had implications for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus was good, and if only God was good, as all rabbinical teaching agreed, then the ruler was saying something important about Jesus. So far from repudiating the deity of Jesus, as some hold, the question seems to invite this rich young ruler to reflect upon it. And so Jesus is not chastising him here. Jesus is simply asking him, why do you call me good? This man thinks he's good. But he responds to him and says, there's no man that is good. No one is good, but God alone. And I think that's an important thing that comes out in this text. Jesus will question this man's obedience and he wants him to see that he alone is God and that he is the lawgiver. Christ is both God and man and men should give him all honor and glory. No man can inherit eternal life except by God alone. Jesus confronts his self-righteousness. Jesus confronts his conceited, proud, arrogant attitude. He regards himself as externally good and righteous and honorable. Jesus here draws him out. Why call me good master? For only God is good. And so we see a glimpse of the nature of Christ. That he is fully man and yet fully God. And even within the church as we went through that exposition of Jude. Oftentimes we see this in the church. There are those who take liberties with the nature of of Christ, the nature of God. They make God to be an idol that they have fashioned for themselves. But we must see, as we have already seen throughout Luke's gospel, that Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than the master. 
He is the eternal Son of God who has become man. Not only does Jesus question his response to him being good, but Jesus instructs him further. He begins to tell him, no man is good but God. Certainly there are men who are called good, and there are men who are called evil. Men may possess good qualities. They may have good qualities because of their upbringing, because of their education or their background or their degree. They can be good for all kinds of reasons. We may say he or she is a good man or a good woman. And what we mean is that they are well-liked, that they are honorable and people esteem them. Jesus describes in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, that a good man can out of the good treasure of his heart bring forth good fruit. But he says, on the other side, an evil man can bring out evil treasure of his heart, which brings forth evil and no fruit. Jesus has in mind that no man in comparison to God is good. No man since the fall of Adam is absolutely and perfectly good. The Apostle Paul reminds us that no man does good. There is no, not one, who does good and sins not. You look throughout the Old Testament and you see all of the blemishes and all of the faults of men like Abraham, men like Moses, men like Joshua. Humanity testifies, and I I want you to catch this. Humanity testifies to the doctrine of total depravity. And it is the state of all of us sitting here today. You can go out in the marketplace, you can go to work, you can go anywhere, and you see, testify, the doctrine of total depravity. And man wants to push that down. Man wants to ignore that. But it should humble us that all of the good within us, whether it be naturally or spiritually, are from God. God is absolutely perfect in His nature. He is essentially good. He is infinitely good. He is immutably good. And He addressed His good teacher argument and now turns to the heart of the question, how can I inherit eternal life? Now Christ draws his attention to the commandments to this question. Why does Jesus draw his attention to the commandments? Because he wants him to understand that fallen and sinful creatures 
can never be justified by their own works. This ruler believed he kept the law perfectly. You see that there in verse 21. I have kept all these things from my youth up. Jesus begins there to ask him, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And the man says, I've kept all of these from my youth up. That's astounding. I don't know anybody that's kept all of those. And yet this ruler believed that he kept the law perfectly. But it is the law that shows the heart and the sincerity of this man. It is the only way that one can receive eternal life. And so the commandments are given to show him that the commandments reveal the heart of God, the way to life, and that to keep them perfectly is really the heart of the question. Why do you suppose that in all three gospel accounts, the second table of the law is the only thing mentioned? Jesus doesn't mention anything about the first table of the law, which is duty to God. He only deals with duty toward man. Well, the Pharisees, as you realize, prided themselves in perfectly keeping the law of God. And when you look at all three parallel accounts, they show that man has no fruit. These are more plain to understand for this ruler and most evident. Jesus is dealing with his possessions. And so Jesus comes to the second table. How do you use your possessions? How do you care for the poor? How do you care for those in need? What do you do with your possessions? Are you content? And so the Jews, you must understand, were more zealous for keeping the externals of the first table, but they were very negligent in the externals of keeping the second table. They failed in showing mercy and compassion, and Matthew bears this out completely. They showed no compassion and mercy to those in need. Those who completely observe the commandments must observe all of them. And Jesus wants him to note that if you have kept these as you say you have kept them, then you have kept all of the law and therefore you're justified. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 tells us that cursed is anyone who does not, what? Continue in the law. And so if a man breaks one point of the law, he's guilty of breaking the entirety of the law. This man is not sincere 
For he does not keep all of the law. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus applies the application of how you should not commit adultery, how you should not kill, how you should not steal, how you should not bear false witness, how you should honor your father and mother. This man failed. Because if he failed in one point of the law, he broke the whole thing. And therefore, like all of us, he's under the curse of, of the law because he has failed to keep it. But there's a final instruction given here by Jesus in his response. He admonishes him for his defect. Notice what he says in verse 22. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, Just one thing. Go. Sell all that you have. Distribute unto the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. He only lacked one requirement. To have eternal life. Jesus did not point out every defect. He pointed out this one. This one fault Jesus drives home to him. Here's a wonderful practical tool out of this section of Luke's gospel that I think can be well utilized in modern evangelism. When people use all kinds of different methods and models, and I was trained in one that that fell short of diagnosing the problem of sin, which any means of evangelism that doesn't diagnose the problem of sin fails. But when you take a man to the law of God and says, you've killed, you've stolen, you've committed adultery, he can't argue or she cannot argue that point, even in the day in which we live. And so to bring the commandments before a sinner and say you have violated this commandment do you honor those in authority well sometimes have i committed anger toward others do i feel like i want to kill somebody have i harbored adulterous thoughts in my mind or in my heart or or sexual desires that are not pleasing unto God, you violated the commandments. And that's what Jesus is impressing here upon him. He knew his faults, but he pressed him at this one point. The one thing he lacked is that he did not love God above all things, and he did not love his neighbor. Jesus was not asking him to give away all of his possessions. Those who, in the early years of the church, promoted a monastic community where men would go off and take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and where they would sell everything and live as hermits somewhere, that is not the teaching of Scripture. 
Jesus here is not condemning the man's wealth. He never says anything about having too much wealth or position or influence. But what he is saying is that he held on tightly to these things more than he did love for God. This was his idol that he loved more than anything else. Money and wealth were not his problem. If you have money and wealth and means, the Lord has blessed you. You are to use it generously for his glory. But it was not his wealth, it was not his possessions, but it was his love. It was his heart toward these things. Many godly men have means. Charles Spurgeon in his day was a man of great means. But godly men use the means that God has given them for his glory and for the benefit of sharing with others and being generous with those who are in need. And so we see here that Jesus drives home that one point that he needed to hear. But thirdly, we see in verses 23 through 27 the difficulty of following Christ. The rich young ruler, the text says, when he heard Jesus say this, when Jesus told him, you lack one thing, sell all that you have, distribute unto the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. When he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was rich. And the man went away. Luke doesn't say that he went away, but by all indications, he went away. He, he didn't. He was not expecting that response from Jesus. He went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Notice how Luke drives home the point that he was very rich. He wasn't just rich, he was very rich. And Jesus gives a response here in verse 24. And when he saw that the man was very sorrowful, he said, now he's speaking to his disciples in all of this as, a, as a, an opportunity for teaching them, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. He's not saying that the rich can't enter the kingdom of God. He says it's hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God because those riches can consume them, because those riches can be that one thing that keeps them away from following the Lord. Many, and even, even within evangelicalism, believe that to follow Christ, there are no demands, that there are no conditions placed upon a man, but only faith. Come just as you are, some churches have as their motto. When Jesus calls a man, he calls him to repent and to believe. He calls him to turn from sin 
But Jesus calls this man not simply to give up his wealth, but to forsake all things for the kingdom of God. Only one sin that is your master can lead your soul to eternal ruin. The question this morning is what sin holds you back from following Christ? Is it peer pressure? Now, I don't have a lot of friends. These guys look pretty cool over here. So I'm going to spend my time hanging out with them. You know, there's no one in our community that we feel like we can, we can hang out with. But this group over here looks like they're fun. And so the pressure of the crowd might be the one thing that you hold on to. It might be that one besetting, controlling sin that you will not give up. Perhaps it's pride. Perhaps it's selfishness. Perhaps it's an ungrateful heart. Perhaps it's a heart that is not generous toward others. That could be the one sin that holds you back. But this man went away. He could not follow Jesus. And then Jesus gives this humorous hyperbole in verse 25 to illustrate how the ruler could not follow Jesus. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Many have made all kinds of speculations about verse 25. Well, he's talking about some gate in ancient Palestine where the camels would walk through. It was a very narrow gate and it was called the, the needle's eye. That may be true, that may not be true. But Jesus is making a hyperbole. He is making a point here to show that just like it would be absolutely impossible for a camel as big as it is to go through the little eye of a needle, that's how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. very difficult. J.C. Ryle, in his comment on this text of Scripture, says this, It is a plain matter of fact that comparatively few rich men are to be found in the way of life. For one thing, riches incline their possessions to pride to self-will, to self-indulgence, and love of the world. For another thing, the rich man is seldom dealt with faithfully about his soul. He is generally flattered and generally fawned upon. Proverbs 14.20 says, The rich man hath many friends, but few people have the courage to tell him the whole truth. And his good points are grossly 
exaggerated. The way of the sinner is very hard. The way of the wicked is very difficult. It is impossible for any to be saved. But J.C. Ryle also warns us that we must be careful that we don't suppose that our own salvation is impossible because of the hardness of our hearts. He says too often it's a suggestion of the devil and sometimes it's just our own lazy hearts. Oh, well, I can't be saved. Don't give way to it. He says, indeed, it is difficult. But it is the grace of God that is enabled to make the impossible possible. For with God, all things are possible. Without God, nothing is possible. But with Him, all things are possible. The disciples understood that if a blessing like money or position is an obstacle to faith and repentance, then all mankind are in a desperate situation. It is impossible for man to be saved that God has the power and the grace to save poor, wretched sinners like us. No man or woman is beyond the grace of God, for we all equally stand before God guilty. We are born in sin. We go astray from our mother's womb, speaking lies. The heart is deceitful and no man can know it. And so it is difficult. But Jesus gives a promise here at the end of the passage to those who follow Christ. Don't you love Peter? Sometimes Peter can be so foolish. Sometimes he can be so impetuous. And other times he can just hit the nail right on the head. And Peter said, he's not asking for a response. He just simply says, Lo, Master, we have left all and followed thee. Some question the sincerity of Peter's response. Some would say that Peter's just ignorant. Perhaps he's naive. But notice Jesus does not give a rebuke. And notice, Peter says, we have left all. We have followed thee. And Peter has in mind, we had lucrative fishing businesses. We gave all of that up. All of our earthly Possessions we have given up for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we followed thee. Peter doesn't say, we will leave all. He says, we've left it all. And these men did leave all. They were not ashamed. They had given up all to follow him. 
Jesus says you must renounce all of those gods and masters, even that one master, in order to follow him. And so, Jesus says that no man that hath left houses or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Notice what Jesus says. They're not waiting for a reward in heaven. There's two aspects to this. They will receive reward now in this present life. And then they will receive what? Not rewards in heaven, but they will receive life everlasting. And for these disciples who had given up all, for those disciples and saints of the church of every age who've given up all, Jesus promises that he would bless them, not with health, wealth, and prosperity as as is erroneously taught today by some false teachers. But here Jesus has in mind that God will do a work of regeneration in their hearts and that he will bless them in ways that money and possessions could never bless them. They might lose their family. They might lose their children. But guess what? They gain fathers and mothers and children. They gain family. We're called brothers and sisters. They have the peace that passes all understanding. They have a pure and clean conscience. They have much It is regarded as manifold. More in this present time than what this rich young ruler will ever experience. This man went away and probably continued holding on to his wealth. But guess what? Day comes when he dies and what's going to happen to his wealth? It's going to go for children to fight over. It's going to go to the federal government. It's going to go to someone. And yet Jesus says, you receive more blessing in this life if you will but follow him. So the call is to abandon your own self-righteousness, to abandon your own self-reliance. For there is reward now, the reward of eternal life to come. What is it this morning that you must abandon in order to follow Christ? Perhaps there's some sitting here this morning who have not made that public declaration, who have not identified themselves publicly with the church of Christ. Oh yes, you were baptized as an infant, but that's only a call to faith. Perhaps there are some here that 
need to really look at their own hearts and see what is that one idol that I'm holding on to? What is it that keeps me from the kingdom of God? For this man, the call was not so much to give up his possessions as it was to remember those in need, to remember the call to generosity. And you know what? We've seen that over and over again throughout this section of Luke. But there's no reason in the world why those who profess to be Christ's disciples cannot be more generous and cannot be more careful in how they show their generosity and love for those in need. That was the one sin that kept this man from the kingdom of God. Who is this Jesus? He indeed is the good master. He is the eternal son of God who became flesh. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Keep all of the commandments of God perfectly. But knowing Christ Jesus has kept all of these commandments perfectly. And by the imputation of his righteousness to the sinner, we can perfectly keep the law of God because of Christ. And so let us determine this morning that we will give up all things for the sake of the kingdom and follow him. May we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give thee thanks this morning for this wonderful news of the gospel. The wonderful news that promises eternal life to all who will abandon their own self-glory and self-righteousness and will cling only unto thee. Lord Jesus, we plead for thy mercy. We plead that you would cause us to abandon those idols, even that one, that we might forsake all for the kingdom. And we ask that you bless this word to our hearts, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.